Now we're going to read from God's Word, and we're reading in the book of Ephesians. Uh, This morning I'm going to read Ephesians 6, verses 1 through 4. Ephesians 6, 1 through 4. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment, with promise, that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. And you, fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. In the time when the Apostle Paul wrote this text, there were other teachers, there were other thinkers who were also giving this kind of advice, advice about parenting, advice about marriage, advice about household servants. And when you compare what they were writing to what Paul was writing, this genre, they were called household codes. Compared to the other teachers and writers, Paul is actually very brief, and some of what Paul writes, it hits the same kinds of notes, and it sounded similar to the the societal values and the expectations in his day. It's reflected in, in some of those other household codes that were given. But some of what Paul says utterly breaks the norms and paints a startling picture of a family, of a kingdom, with very different but noble values. And, and the vision that Paul depicts, he, he sets up these, these tensions, these beautiful tensions. We looked at marriage in these past two weeks. In Paul's picture, you'll recall that the husband is the head and the wife is joined to the head. And that wasn't very abnormal for the people in those times. But then Paul asserted this. He said, the woman holds equal value and dignity to the man, to her husband. And and then Paul calls the husband to lay down his life in love for her. That that tension, that, that elevation of the woman, it's a total subversion of the power dynamics that were typical in those times. Now, today we turn from marriage to parenting. And Paul establishes a similar beautiful tension in the roles and the responsibilities, but this time between children and parents. And so we're going to look at three things. First of all, we'll look at how children honor parents. How children honor parents. And then secondly, we'll look at how parents train children. How parents train children. And then thirdly, we'll look at the honor that both lowers us and elevates us. So how children honor parents, how parents train children, and then the honor that both lowers and elevates us. Let's start with how children are to honor parents. Verse 1 starts with these words, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Now, hearing that, it probably did not startle you, but the very first word of that sentence would have startled the original hearers. What's the first word there? Children. He says, children. For Paul to directly address and to instruct the children in the congregation, that was unique. 
other household code documents, they did not speak to the children. Children would be discussed, but children would not be addressed as if they were hearers, as if they had moral agency and had responsibility. Look at several significant implications from this. One implication. By doing this, Paul is affirming the full humanity of children by speaking to them, not just speaking about them, but by directly speaking to the children. Paul gives them dignity. He affirms their moral ability, their moral agency. He affirms that they are fully human. They have full human identity and value. And that was different because in that culture, in those days, children were viewed at the level of pets. Now, another implication. He also affirms the full humanity of boys and girls. He uses the Greek word techna, which includes both male and female children. It wasn't the only word. He didn't have to do that, but he did. And in that patriarchal society of that time, Paul notably here is including girls at a time when girls would have easily been relegated even lower than the boys. And so Paul recognizes the full personhood of people, regardless of their age, regardless of their gender. Another implication from this, he affirms the presence of the children in the worshiping assembly. By addressing the children of the congregation, by addressing them directly, we understand that Paul expected the children would be there. He expected that boys and girls, girls included, that they would be present in the hearing of God's word. You didn't have the girls sent to some different location during the worship service. You didn't have the children sent off to some kind of junior church during the congregation's worship meeting. The boys, the girls, remained with the adults. And that meant they remained with all of the challenges of disruption and distraction that come with keeping children in the service. Now let me add on to this the theological dimension that's, that's underneath this, that's, that's in the rest of the Bible. Children of believers, the children of believers are part of the body of Christ. Children of believers have a place. They have an official status in the covenant promises. You look at how, how verse 1 uses the phrase, in the Lord. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. He's not saying obey your parents, the ones who are in the Lord. He's saying, children, you are in the Lord. Children, obey in the Lord. Children, you who are in the Lord, obey your parents. You children who are in the Lord, obey your parents. And so you children here who are hearing this, you children who are here this morning, if your mom, if your dad is a Christian, you've got a place here. You yourself, you do need to come to a day where you yourself know and can say, yes, I, I have repented of my sin. I do believe on Jesus for my salvation. But even today, you are part of his church, his body. You are part of his bride. The place of children, it's, it's one of the distinctively Reformed and Presbyterian understanding of, of many, many passages in the Bible. Now, let's just let's pull some of this together. Today, people can, can kind of go off in two different directions. They can, they can undervalue children or they can overvalue children. People can undervalue children this way. 
and, and you can ask yourself, here's one way that you undervalue children. How do you think about children? What's your, your, um, your, your gut reaction when, when the, the presence of children is brought up? Are, are children nuisances? Are they, are they burdensome inconveniences to the people that have to be around them, to their parents? Or are, are children small terrorists just without firearms? Well, this is what you need to know. Children will be impediments. Children will impede your career. Children will reduce your comfort. Having children is always costly. It is. And, and it's even beyond your means, financially, emotionally, mentally, physically. But that's not all that they are. That's not the entirety of what they are. We can also undervalue children when we, when we strip them of moral agency. And I think, well, I would never do that. Well, here's a way that we do do that. You sometimes will hear that when parents look at their three-year-old and they say that the three-year-old is just a three-year-old. And three-year-olds will rebel and three-year-olds will have no control over his or her tantrums, his or her complaining, his or her refusal to comply with reasonable instruction. Well, when, you've, when, you, when you allow that, when you view the child as just being powerless by nature of being three, you've diminished that child's humanity, the child's capacity to have self-control. The child has capacity to receive training, the child has capacity to change. So those are some ways that we can undervalue children, but we can also overvalue children. You, you have that when, when you've got a household where the, child, the child's desires rule the house and rules the parents, and the child refuses to do what the parents are asking, and the parents refuse to do anything that would contradict the child's innate desires. The parents refuse to do anything that would contradict the child's innate will. And even though it is true that we've just said that children have full personhood, children are immature people. They're people, but they're immature people. Children have immature outlooks. Children have immature behavior. And so children need training. Children need correction, instruction. Children are not adults. And so children shouldn't be allowed to run their own eating, their own sleeping, their own behavior. They need to be protected from themselves. So let's move on. The, the text gives two instructions to children. Verse 1. Children, obey your parents. That's the first one. Children, obey your parents. Verse 2. The second instruction, honor your father and mother. So these are given as, as orders, not as suggestions. These are obligations, not options. He's saying, children, you must obey what your parents say. And, and in your head and, and in your heart, you've also got to hold mom and dad with honor. So what does it mean both to, to obey and to honor your parents? Well, it means something like this. It means when you're parents tell you what to do, you do it. And you do it with respect, not with resentment. You do it without debate. You do it without complaint. And so, children, if, you're, if your mom says, go clean your room, 
or she says, time to come in, time to do your chores. You do it. You don't delay. You don't grumble or fuss about it. You do it without pouting. And if your dad says something like, okay, no screens, start your homework before 3 p.m. Then you make homework your priority after school. But if you argue, if you resist, if you throw a fit, that's not obeying. That's what the Bible calls disobedience. Now, that's obedience. What does it mean to honor your parents? Well, honor, honor is, the, is, the, is the depth below the obedience. Honor is the depth underneath the obedience. Honor is the attitude, the attitude that says, because you are my parents, I hold you in respect. When you honor your parents, you, you, you have this attitude where you're trying to do justice to what they've asked of you. Now, you may ask, and you should ask this, what if your parents, what if my parent does not deserve honor? What if my parent is not honorable? When you honor, when you honor your parents, even if mom or dad is not worthy of your honor, you still treat them with respect. And, and here's an example. Think of, think of David and his father-in-law, Saul. So David is the son-in-law. His father-in-law, to whom he owes honor, is Saul. David owed Saul honor doubly, in fact. He owed him honor as a king. He owed him honor as his father-in-law. But Saul was not worthy of honor. In fact, Saul was abusive. He verbally abuses his own son, Jonathan. He physically abuses David in trying to kill him multiple times. He emotionally abuses David by doing things like breaking up his marriage. And Saul, personally, is deeply troubled, emotionally deeply troubled, and spiritually. Paul, Saul is tormented by evil spirits. And yet, when you carefully look at all the interactions between David and his father-in-law, Saul. David always honors Saul. Even, even when David has to disobey Saul, David still holds Saul with an attitude of honor, with respect. And so maybe you've got a parent who is not worthy of honor. Maybe they've made a mess of themselves. You can still honor that parent, even if you must resist some of their demands. One illustration of, of how it plays out with, with David and Saul. First Samuel 26, uh, David's relationship with his father-in-law has at this point burned to the ground. Saul is pursuing David, pursuing him with armed men, seeking out of jealousy, seeking out of, out of his own insecurity. He's seeking to kill his son-in-law, David. It's unjust, it's unrighteous, it's abusive. But look at how David still honors Saul. Look at David's attitude and his outlook towards Saul. 1 Samuel 26, 24, David says to Saul, your life was valued much this day in my eyes. So let my life be valued much in the eyes of the Lord. Saul has just said here, Saul, the father-in-law, has said, I have acted like a fool and I've been terribly wrong." But David shows what it means to honor a fool, to honor an erring parent. David values Saul's life. In his heart, that's his attitude. Even though Saul doesn't deserve the honor, David treats him as though he is worthy 
of honor. David can look at Saul who's dangerous. He can look at Saul who's doing wrong. And in David's heart, he still values Saul's life. And that keeps David from despising Saul, even as he has to flee from Saul. Now, if you deal with an abusive person like Saul, you may have to flee. You may have to make distance. You may have to disobey orders in order to preserve life. But if you can do that, if you can do that with honor in your heart, if you can honor that person, value their life, it will keep you from in your heart having a heart of revenge, from having a heart of of retaliation. It, It will keep you, it'll prevent you from becoming a bitter and a hard person yourself. And it will sound the note of what it means, what it looks like to love your enemy. Now, are there limitations to this? Certainly. Let let me just list a few limitations. One limitation. Though children must obey and honor parents, children must never obey a sinful command. Children must never obey a sinful command from parents. And you see that principle established in places like Acts 5, 29, where they say, we ought to obey God rather than man. You've got to obey God rather than man. If man tells you to do something that is is wrong, you've got to obey God. If your dad tells you to steal, if your dad tells you to do drugs, you've, you've got to be able to come up with some kind of response that says, dad, no disrespect, but I've got to say no to you on this. The text says, obey your parents in the Lord. So it doesn't mean you unequivocally always obey your parents. You obey your parents in the Lord. And if dad's words go against God's words, you've got to obey God rather than man. So that's one limitation. Another limitation, the command to obey parents is given to children. Children, techna, obey parents. There will come a day when you cease being a child. When I became a man, I left childish ways behind. Parents have got to understand this. And children, you children, you also need to understand this. And and for parents, it means parents, the closer your girls and your boys, the closer they get to becoming adults, the closer they become, they get to becoming women and men, the fewer commands you need to be giving the fewer commands you need to be giving. Because parent, are you essentially giving orders to men and women about their spending, about their spouse, about their studies? They're not children. And children, you you need to understand this. Now, now while you still are a child, you need to obey your Parents, you need to obey them, and and if your if your parents give you a, a a command and it's put you in a in an impossible situation, a dilemma, ask someone for help. Ask someone who is wise and who will give you help in, in figuring out what what am I supposed to do. But know this: eventually, you're going to grow up, and you will no longer be a child, and it will be time to stop obeying mom and dad but you will still hold them in honor. And as you become men and women, isn't it the case that you you start to see the real flaws, the real shortcomings of your parents, 
And, and maybe your parents, especially once you become an adult, maybe your parents will, will be humble and, and will be honest and, and they'll admit to you their errors. But if you keep holding your mom and your dad in this place of honor, when you hear about their junk, their sins, their mistakes, their foolishness, you're going to be able to say, with all due respect, mom, with all due respect, dad, I don't agree. I don't approve of what you did or what you said, but I respect you. I value you. Now, what if your parent's doing something wrong? What if they're sinning? What if they're doing something evil? What if dad is hurting mom? What if mom is cheating on dad? Well, well here's what it could look like to honor them. First Timothy 5, 1, it says, Do not sharply rebuke an older man. Rather, make an appeal. Entreat him. An entreaty is different than a sharp rebuke. An entreaty is a, a, a respectful plea. And if, if the man, if the woman is wise, he will be entreatable. Now, this gives a flavor of, of how to honor and to obey parents, the, the action of it, the attitude of it. Now let's see why. Why should you honor and obey your parents? Why should you obey your parents? Well, first of all, because it's right. Because it's right. Verse 1, he says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Now, the Bible there is placing a moral absolute. It is right, it says. It is right that children should obey parents. And it's wrong when children disobey parents. Now, if you're listening to this and you're not a Christian, we're glad that you're here with us. And, and depending on your background, maybe these kinds of absolute statements, they make you uncomfortable. And, and to some extent, to some degree, absolute statements like this make some of us uncomfortable as well. Because there are all these exceptions. There are all these ways where you, you see how this could go wrong, how people may misuse this. Well, here's something that can alleviate maybe some of your discomfort. And it, it takes us to, to the doctrine of God. The commandment does not come. This commandment saying that you should obey your parents, children, for it's right. It doesn't come from a person. It doesn't come from a human being. Human beings are way too flawed, way too limited to make any kind of absolute statements. But this absolute statement of right and wrong, it comes from God. And part of the doctrine of God is that he knows better. He knows better than us. He's, he's, he's bigger than us. He's more knowledgeable than us. He knows better than we do. His ways are not our ways. And so this absolute statement comes from God, who, is, who not only knows more, but he's good. He's entirely good. His ways are perfect. All his ways are just. Deuteronomy 32, a faithful God who does no wrong, upright and just is he. And so when this higher being, God, who's entirely good, who all of his ways are right, when he tells us, children, you must obey your parents. We trust him. We can trust him. And we can acknowledge that his moral code, it should be our moral code. We trust him in this. Now, this commandment to honor parents, it's also, if you want reinforcement about this, it's, it's part of the Ten Commandments. You can read it in Exodus 20. You can read it in Deuteronomy 5. And so this is also, it is a top-level moral principle. It, it goes along with, you shall not murder you shall not steal, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not lie. Honor your father and mother. 
is one of those ten. So we obey parents because it is right. That's one reason. A second reason, though, to honor and to obey your parents, it says here that it will bring good and it will bring wellness in this life if you obey it. If you obey and honor your parents, it will bring good to you. It will bring wellness in this life. Verse 2 says, honor your father and mother. And this commandment comes with a promise. What's the promise? Verse 3, that it will be well with you and that you may enjoy long life. So he promises wellness, <coughs> excuse me, <clears throat> and longevity to those who honor their own parents. Now, is he saying that you will never have problems if you honor your parents? Is he saying you will live to be 80, 90 years old if you will honor your parents? Well, I think he's saying this in the way that so many of the Proverbs in the Bible say things like this. He is saying, yes. If you honor your parents, life will go well, and you will live long, unless, unless our good God has something even better for you. And on that, we could just park. Honor your parents when you're a child. Obey them when you're a child. Honor your parents when you are old and they are even older. And if you honor your parents, life will go well. It will extend your days in this life. And if you have honored your parents and life is not going well and your life seems to be prematurely coming to an end, could it be that perhaps you need to exercise some divine imagination and, and imagine that God has something even better for you in your trouble and in your trials in this life? Can you trust him? You can. We've looked now at how parents honor, how children honor parents. Let's look briefly now at how parents train children. How are parents to train children? We get just one verse here, verse four. And you fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. So there's, there's something that's stated negatively, there's something stated positively. The negative, he says, fathers, don't provoke your children to wrath. He's saying, fathers, don't exasperate your kids. Now, everyone here has a father. Young and old, you've got a father. Does your father frustrate you? Did your father frustrate you? Father, do you frustrate your kids? Now, I think we could easily generate some of the ways that we frustrate our sons and our daughters. We do that, we frustrate them when, by being overly demanding. Overly demanding. By being overly controlling. By, by being unreasonable with them by refusing to listen to what they are trying to tell us, by being insulting, by being hard instead of compassionate towards them, by being distant instead of close, by showing favoritism, by, by indulging ourselves as parents, by, by being hypocritical, by being highly critical of others, we exasperate them when we're impulsive and when we're stubborn, 
when we plant our flag as parents, where we pull the, the, the parent card and plant our flag on something stupid, but we will not budge, refusing to admit when we're wrong. All of that exasperates our children, provokes them to wrath. But look at the beautiful tension that the Bible sets up here. It says, children, obey your parents. Obey these kinds of parents. And it says, fathers, don't provoke your children to anger with your commands or with your character. You see the tension that's being set up there. So that's the prohibition. That's the negative. What's the positive? He says, bring them up. Bring them up in the training and the admonition of the Lord. That term, bring them up, it's the, it's the same term that he uses earlier about husbands nourishing and cherishing the wife. It describes a process, not, not a, a nice weekend that you arranged three years ago. It's, it's the ongoing care of a plant. You've got to care for a plant over a course of weeks, months. You ensure there's enough water. You, you make sure that light is coming in. You prune the leaves. And that's how it is as a parent. It's a horticultural process that takes care over time. And so two aspects of nurturing and cultivating your child are given here. Training and admonition. The first word, training, the word paideia. It, it paints a picture of, of, a, of a coach with an athlete. A coach with an athlete. And it's not a one-time, you got one hour with a coach and that's it. It's the coach with the athlete for a whole season putting the athlete through ongoing tests, putting the, the athlete through disciplined activities in order to produce fitness and skill. It's a season of effective instruction to produce an outlook in the athlete, to produce character in the athlete. As a parent, you are trying to help your child develop. You're trying to help your child develop things like, like self-control, like, like self-regulation. And that's going to take training. It's not going to work just to give insistent words. Control yourself. You've got to train them like a skilled coach who can get into the head of the player and knows how to, how to, to break it down, how to inspire them, how to correct them, how to encourage them. Now, the second word, admonition, nuthesia. It, it could be warning. It could be reproof, some kind of, of correction. T- telling the child when they get it wrong now, is, is correction, is reproof, is it negative? Is it destructive for the child? It could be, but it does not have to be. Hebrews 12, 7 through 11 tells how it could be. It tells parents how to correct children when children get it wrong. Let me just point out two things from Hebrews 12, 7 through 11. First of all, there is a constructive correction as opposed to destructive correction. Constructive correction has got to come from a heart of love. Constructive correction has to come from a heart of love. Hebrews twelve six, For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. So if you've got your child and your, your, your child makes a terrible scene in public. It could be your teenager. It could be your toddler. And your heart is filled with frustration and anger and embarrassment. Before you correct, as you correct, you have got to get love in your heart. Not shame. 
You've got to get love, not frustration and anger. You've got to get love in your heart. And then, from love, correct your child. So, constructive correction has to come from a heart of love. The second thing we see here is, constructive correction, it's got to be unpleasant. Constructive correction has to be unpleasant, even painful to the child, in order to produce good change. Hebrews 12, 11. Now, no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. When, as a parent, when you, when you bring consequences, but you're bringing them in love, when you're bringing consequences for the child's behavior in love, you're bringing it for the sake of training, not just to vent your anger, and And it's painful for the child when you bring these kinds of painful consequences in love and it even produces tears in the child, that will produce peaceable fruit of righteousness to those children who will be trained by it. And what he's saying here in Hebrews 12 is that is how God trains his children. That is how God in love trains and and corrects his own children. When he brings discipline to you, He's never being vindictive. He's never embarrassed and and, and he's just lashing out in frustration. This is how faithful and loving our God is and this is how faithful and loving parents must train and must correct their own children. Okay, so perhaps you're a parent and your child needs correction. On the one hand, what's going to keep you from being so terrified about getting correction wrong and, and what's going to keep you from being so terrified that you withhold correction? Well, it's going, to, it's going to be love. Because you love your son, because you love your daughter, you know that their temper tantrums, they're, they're lashing out and biting other kids or striking other kids. Because you love them, you know you've got to correct it or they're going to grow up to be unruly, entitled, unbridled. Because you love them, you are going to correct so that they'll be changed. But on the other hand, if your child needs correction, what's going to prevent you from being a tyrant, from going overboard, from being tyrannical and giving correction, from from overdoing or being overly controlling and micro-correcting too much? What's going to stop you? Again, it's going to be love. If love motivates you, you're not going to correct out of frustration. You're not going to correct because your pride has been wounded. If you have love, you will bring the least amount of correction needed for the training. And if you're correcting in love, it will make you tender and entreatable as you do it. And, and so if as you're doing it, maybe you're getting it wrong as a parent. And, and if your spouse or your son makes an appeal and says, I think you're going overboard. I think you got this wrong. I think you've read it wrong. I think these consequences are not appropriate. If you've been doing it in love, you'll be tender, you'll be entreatable, and you'll be able to receive their entreaty. 1 Corinthians 13.5 says, Love does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. Well, how about, how about for you if you're functioning as a son, if you're functioning as a daughter? What will enable you as a son or a daughter to, in, to honor parents who don't deserve honor? What will enable you to submit to them when it just crosses your will? 
well, maybe the maybe the most difficult time to hold our parents with honor is is when when they they disciplined us wrongly, when they got it wrong, they overcorrected us, or they're being micromanagers, helicopter parents. Maybe they they were misinterpreting us, and so they miscorrected us. It's very hard, isn't it, to honor a parent who accuses unjustly and who punishes unjustly. Maybe your your dad judges you hastily and unfairly lectures you. How do you honor a parent who's unworthy of honor? Well, you, you need to see Jesus Christ in the gospel. You need to see how Jesus submitted to his father's discipline when he had done nothing worthy of blame. There's a well-known proverb, there are well-known proverbs about the use of spanking for child discipline. For instance, Proverbs 23.13, do not withhold discipline from a child. If you strike him with a rod, he will not die. It's talking about spanking, not about beating, not about abuse. And it says, do not withhold discipline from a child. If you spank him with a rod, it won't kill him. But in the gospel, Jesus was not spanked. He was scourged. He was beaten. And why? The governor said he found no fault in him, but he had Jesus beaten anyways. Isaiah 53.5 tells us why and how Jesus submitted to that. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastening for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. As Christ was crucified, he knew exactly what the Father was doing. Jesus had agreed. Jesus will be the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. But at the same time, in some mysterious puzzle of divinity, Jesus also was puzzled at the actions of the Father. And and that's why Jesus, as he was being chastened, asked the Father, why? Why have you forsaken me? Jesus submitted to the Father even when Jesus seemed to not fully understand the Father. And so you, as a son, as a daughter, seeing the humble submission of Jesus, our Savior, so you can you submit to and and honor an earthly father that you don't fully understand? You see what this does? If If you're a believer, if you're a believer, whether or not you're a parent, you've been honored as if you were a parent. You've been honored. And it's an honor that lowers you because you know that you didn't deserve the honor. You deserve correction. You deserve condemnation for your transgressions. All of us, we're all outlaw children, outlaw parents. But you've been honored as if you're a parent with this honor that lowers you but also elevates you. I don't understand why God would have us honor even dishonorable parents. But I do know this. On the cross, Jesus received the sharpest correction and it was undeserved and it wasn't for any sin in him, but it was for our sins. And by his seemingly unjust punishment, we receive the undeserved honor and we receive a secure love from a perfect father, our heavenly father. Jesus was dishonored so that you could receive the highest honor. And when you, when you know that, when, when you have that undeserved honor through Christ, you're able to give honor to those who don't deserve it because you received undeserved honor. And, and rather than that making you tyrannical and harsh, 
It has to make you tender. It has to make you gentle. Let's pray. Lord, we, we come as your children and we're grateful that Jesus is our elder brother who obeyed you in all things and pleased you in all things and always honored you. And we're thankful that you are tender with us when we sin and you have never overcorrected us. Jesus was corrected in our place. And so now all of this is, is constructive training that we receive, even though it's painful. We pray that you would produce in us a trust in you when things are hard and that you would produce fruit in us where there is sin that we are seeking to put to death. And we pray, Lord, in all of these things, we would find Christ sweet and beautiful and that we would be delighted that he would do all this for us. He must love us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.